midweek, Stuart and I were talking just about the series of sermons we're doing this month, just sort of a topical series, and had I been one who was good at planning ahead and coming up with titles ahead of time, this would have come to me earlier, um, but here we are partway through it. But I, I just felt like the word intentional uh, is really what we're getting at this month, and that's kind of what these series of topical sermons are hitting at, is getting us to be intentional about these topics, to think about them. Last week we talked about prayer. Today the subject is giving. Next week I hope to look at ethnic diversity in light of Scripture. Stuart will then preach on the 21st on the sanctity of human life issue and abortion. All of these are topics that are, are clearly addressed in Scripture. All have a number of sermons probably that could go with them. Uh, we're not taking the time to be exhaustive on each of these, but there's a common thread that I... I hope that you pick up along the way, and that is, on each of these, the desire is to hopefully get us thinking more intentionally about how do I see what Scripture wants me to do in this area, how God wants me to respond to this. Uh, so it is my hope that as we uh, talked about prayer last week, that you've been encouraged this week uh, to, to perhaps be more intentional about your praying and talking to your Heavenly Father as one who is helpless and humble and dependent on Him in faith. Uh, and the same goes for this morning as we look at this topic of giving. I hope that it will help you to think more intentionally about it. There's a tendency in Christian circles when we bring up the subject of giving that we tend to see Christian ministries fall to either of two unbiblical extremes. The side that always seems to talk about money, that always seems to be pressuring people for more money, for a larger gift, for some kind of demonstration, if you will, of your faith by giving a larger gift that will be turned back to you in some way. And then the, the opposite extreme, which is sort of the reaction to that, which says because people are so turned off by what they hear from so-called Christian organizations about giving, we don't talk about it. We just sort of shy away from it. Neither is a biblical approach. Nowhere in Scripture is there ever any manipulation or coercion to try to get people to give. But by the same token, Scripture speaks in ample measure about giving. It speaks in great detail about our finances, how we handle what God has entrusted to us, and how we are in terms of our generosity and giving to that. It's all a reflection of the heart and the work that God is doing within us. So with that in mind, if you turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 8, I'm actually going to hit a number of different scriptures before we read here, but they'll be up on the screen for you. But just to sort of set the background, when we come to 2 Corinthians, there are three letters that we know of from Scripture that were written to the Corinthians, two that we have recorded for us, first and second Corinthians, and then what appears to be a third one between those two that is referred to in second Corinthians 2 as a severe letter that, that Paul wrote to the church at Corinth. Second Corinthians is in large part Paul speaking about his desire now to be reconciled with the, the Corinthian church. It is a, almost a, a celebratory book at times in that it is acknowledging that sin that separated them, that a, a turning away from Paul that had taken place by the believers in Corinth uh, through slandering Paul, it has now been corrected with repentance and reconciliation, and there is fellowship restored, and he is in a sense, celebrating that, and it is a response to that severe letter that he had written in between that, that Titus had delivered on his part to the Corinthians. Um, that letter is delivered. Titus brings it. Again, if you go back, Paul was instrumental in planting the church in Corinth. We see in the book of Acts. 
We see him write 1 Corinthians dealing with a lot of the early immaturity struggles of a young church and some of the sin issues they dealt with and a lot of great instruction on life in the local church and life in the world. And then there are the false teachers who come in and they seek to undermine the gospel and the word of God by attacking the messenger, by slandering Paul and by driving the people to slander Paul. And so that's met then with Paul writing this this severe letter as it's described. Titus delivers it. He brings it back, comes back to Paul with the news that the people of Corinth have responded with repentance and there is restoration and there is joy and there is just great celebration because they have responded well. And so at the end of chapter 7, Paul is really describing that sense of sending that letter with confidence. When he sent them that severe letter, he did so with the belief that God would accomplish a work through this because he believed in God's grace in their lives. And so he didn't send it sort of in trepidation that they were going to take it and things were going to get worse. He sent it with the expectation that as professing believers in Jesus Christ, they would respond well and that fellowship would be restored. And so he's, in a sense, celebrating that at the end of chapter 7. When you come to chapter 8 then, it is out of that encouragement and that gratitude for what God has done that Paul then says, there is, though, one outstanding issue. There is one more thing, though, that we need to address, something that he had taught them back in 1 Corinthians, and and this is what we need to talk about here, and he'll talk about it down in verses 10 and 11, in fact, as being something that they started a year ago, and then they left it unfinished, and so he's bringing them back to this particular issue to say, okay, As much as I have been encouraged by what God has done in your life, I expect to be encouraged again as you finish what you were starting. And what that is, is giving. The matter that he is addressing is the subject of giving. Back in 1 Corinthians, Paul had first laid out for these young believers, here's what this looks like. Here is what giving looks like. In 1 Corinthians 16, verses 1 through 3, Paul wrote, Now concerning the collection for the saints... As I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up, as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. Stop there. He's laying out for them the, the New Testament pattern of giving and saying, as God supplies income presumably on a a weekly basis, as you receive some income, you take a portion of that income and you set it aside for the offering. Paul touches on something that is more specific to he and his situation, and that is he says, I don't want collecting when I'm there, and that probably has something to do with this whole credibility issue that, that would creep up with the false teachers who say, yeah, Paul's just coming around with his hand out and wants your money, and so he purposefully says here that I I want this to take place before I'm there. All I'm going to do is is meet with the messengers that you put stock and faith in, and and we're going to make sure that your offering is taken to those believers in Jerusalem who are in need. But the pattern he gives there is sort of weekly, according to income, um, giving a proportion of that income. little church history that's probably helpful at this point when we see him explaining this. 
Jerusalem was the birthplace of the Christian church. We see it in the book of Acts and the, the preaching that took place at Pentecost as Peter proclaims the gospel of Jesus Christ and, and, and the church is born there amongst Jews, Jews who were in Jerusalem who are celebrating the, the, the feast of Pentecost. And, and there they come to faith in Christ, some from that area of Jerusalem and Judea, many others from outside the area who come, learn about Jesus Christ, his life, death, and resurrection. They become believers, and they carry that gospel back to the communities that they go to. And so it's largely Jewish believers to begin the church. And, and for most of them, they go back to situations where they are not wonderfully embraced for their newfound faith, but rather they are ostracized. They, they face opposition from the Roman Empire and its belief in a plurality of deities. They face opposition from the Jewish religious leaders who have just crucified Jesus Christ. And now they are proclaiming, we believe in Jesus as the risen Messiah. And so immediately the reaction is anywhere from severe persecution to at best being ostracized, being cut off from customers, from jobs, from from relatives, facing all of the, the, the newfound challenges that come with all of that enthusiasm suddenly, um, at least from a worldly perspective, seeking to be squashed by people who want nothing to do with you because of your faith in Christ. In addition to that, the early believers faced taxation from the Roman government. We saw that when we talked about the beginning of the life of Christ in Luke chapter 2 and the census that was done for tax purposes. And in particular, in Judea and the area around Jerusalem, it is not a heavy trade location. It's not a commercial center. When we talk about Corinth, we're talking about a coastal city where there was a lot of trade that went in and out. And so Judea, Jerusalem, largely an agrarian society. So you've got all of this against you. You're, you're being ostracized. You may not have the work you once had. You've got taxation. It's not easy to make any kind of wealthy living to begin with. And so they are facing, in many senses poverty. The gospel then goes from there out to non-Jews, to Gentiles, begins to spread throughout the Roman Empire. As that happens, as Gentiles come to faith in Jesus Christ, then you have the sort of the new problem to deal with, and that is the, the ethnic dynamic. There is already um, bitterness between Jews and Gentiles, the, the Jews in particular looking down on the Gentiles, and so you've now got this existing ethnic division in the culture now being brought into the church with Jews and Gentiles together in the church. And, and, and what goes with that, the challenges that go with that. And that's what Paul is alluding to in Ephesians chapter 2 when he talks about the wall of hostility between Jews and Gentiles that is now being broken down by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Christ is changing hearts so that while the world may see Jew and Gentile and say, never the twain shall meet, the gospel says, no, we are united together as brothers in Christ. We know, though, that old habits die hard. We see it certainly in our own country, in our own struggles with ethnic division. So when Paul goes to Gentile churches and he writes to Gentile churches, one of the things that he seeks to do to help build this unity is to teach the Gentiles about giving to the body of believers and serving the Jewish believers through their giving, ministering to them in that way. And he sees this as a necessary part of life for Gentile Christians, that they should have a sense of compassion for their Jewish brethren and should be giving to help them. So let me read to you from out of Romans 15. This passage would come after 2 Corinthians chronologically. He writes it from Corinth. So know all that. It helps us, I think, when we see 2 Corinthians 8. But Romans 15, verse 25, at present... 
I am going to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. For they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. So Paul is writing from Corinth after giving the instruction we're going to read this morning and writing to the Roman believers now about this giving to the saints in Jerusalem. Corinth was the capital of Achaia. And so what he says here is that the people in Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make a contribution. That's giving us a clue that what we're going to see in 2 Corinthians 8, where he's exhorting them, ends up his, his confidence in God's work in them will be fulfilled. They will respond, indeed, and, and, and they give. Uh, but the, the point there in verses 20, uh, 26 is this collection for Jerusalem. He went back to that area, and it is fulfilled. His hope in God is fulfilled in them. But I want you to see verse 27, because his attitude there in verse 27 essentially is, Hey, Gentile believers, you owe something to your Jewish brethren. He's pretty blunt about it, not manipulating them in any way, but essentially reminding them as he's walked through the gospel in the book of Romans, he's now reminding them and saying, listen, the Savior that you believe in was the Messiah to the Jewish people. He came from the line of David. He is a Jew. And so you are now reaping spiritual blessings by virtue of now being joined in to that, that family of God. That, that Jewish Messiah has now become your Savior. And so his comment to them there is, so you owe them something. If you received spiritual blessings because of the, the, the God working through the Jewish people to bring the Messiah you ought then respond by ministering to their material needs. You can serve them back, if you will, in this way. Understand, there were poor believers all throughout the empire. This wasn't a problem that was exclusive to Jerusalem and Judea. Wherever people came to faith in Christ, there were believers who faced persecution and who lost work and, and who suddenly had to deal with loss of material goods. The book of Hebrews speaks of that, of stuff simply being stolen away from believers and believers being cast into jail simply for their faith in Christ. But what we're about to read in 2 Corinthians 8 is God's instruction to these Gentile Christians to, to speak to their hearts to, to teach them to have compassion for these Jewish believers. This is the part, again, that precedes what we saw in Romans. This is where, where God now speaks to them. And, and so the comments in Romans 15 about what's now being fulfilled is what he's laying out for them here in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and what it is they need to do. So finally, 2 Corinthians 8. Let's look at just the opening verses of the chapter. Paul says to the church at Corinth, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord. Let me stop there for a second. Let's take a look at map just real quick so we can sort of place where we are. So Jerusalem is here. Church is born here. When he talks about the churches of Macedonia, we're up here north of the Aegean Sea. And so it's churches like the Philippians, the, Thessalon the Thessalonians, the Bereans, all the coastal cities that he's traveled around and ministered to. 
Corinth is further south. And so he's writing to the Corinthians, holding out the example of the Macedonian Christians about giving that ultimately will go back to the believers in Jerusalem. The New Testament letters to the Thessalonians and the Philippians show us again the, the suffering that they experienced. Both books show us people who find joy even in the midst of hardship. In fact, 2 Thessalonians, it, it appears that at least an important part of the, the cultural background, that the historic background, I should say, that, that frames the writing of 2 Thessalonians is the believers in Thessalonica being so persecuted that they are beginning to wonder, have we missed something here? Has Jesus come and we've been left behind in some way? And, and Paul writes 2 Thessalonians in part to comfort them and to say, you're okay. This is all in God's plan. You haven't missed anything at this point. Jesus Christ is still coming for his church. And so there is great suffering that is going on in those churches in Macedonia. Paul's now using those churches as an example for the believers in Corinth. And he's saying to the believers in Corinth, look, I, I'm teaching you here about these churches of Macedonia because of the, the, the overflow and wealth of generosity at, uh, on their part. The key for us that's that going to guide our, our study of this passage is that he is not saying, hey, Corinthians, look at the Macedonians. They're really awesome. These are super believers. These are mature believers. These are believers who really get it. But rather, his point to the Corinthians is to say, this is God's grace at work in their lives. And so he wants to use them as an example, but an example to point them to God's grace, not to the Macedonians as being the people that they should somehow seek to emulate apart from the grace of God. He uses that word grace five times in these first nine verses, ten times over chapters eight and nine. It is absolutely crucial that the Corinthians understand that what he's going to teach them about the giving that's come from these beleaguered churches in Macedonia was not because they were under compulsion, because they felt obligated in some way to do their duty, but rather that it was the grace of God at work. And so you've got the outline in your bulletin, the motivation for grace giving, the manner of grace giving, and then the mandate for grace giving. Verse 1 that starts it all off is, we want you to know, brothers, about what? Right there, verse 1. We want you to know, brothers, about grace. the grace of God. Right. He, he doesn't start off by saying, brothers, we're going to give you a message about giving here. I'm going to give you some instruction about giving. Or, brothers, we want you to know about the Macedonians and their example. The pivotal statement is we want you to know about the grace of God at work in them. The grace of God is the focal point. He's going to hold out the Macedonians, their affliction, their poverty, their joy, their generosity, and all of these elements about what he's seen in them as he's just been through there and experienced it. But he is not seeking to get people to commend the Macedonians because that would completely miss the point. The point is, I want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God. It is God's unmerited favor to undeserving people. That is what grace is. It is God doing for us purely out of his mercy and kindness, not something that we've earned in some way. And so he's trying to remind the Corinthians here, this is not manipulation when it comes to money. This is not coercion. This is 
empowered, worked through, if you will, people by virtue of God's grace in them. That's what motivates and empowers. Look down at verse 7 for just a second. 2 Corinthians 8, 7. And we'll come back to this again, but this is the, the closing in this section. Again, he says, But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. We know from 1 Corinthians that the Corinthian church was a blessed church, that despite all of their struggles with sin, one of the, the teachings that, that fills 1 Corinthians is the section on spiritual gifts. And one of the things that, that that section reinforces is that you as believers in the Corinthian church have all been equipped for ministry. You've been gifted in some way or another with some spiritual gift to use for the, the building up of the body. And so you have been blessed. And he, he here in verse 7 speaks of it. In faith, you have been given faith in God, in speech, you, you've been given the proclamation of truth you, you get to hear in your church, in knowledge, you are a church that God has, has given the ability to begin to comprehend his truths, in earnestness, you're a passionate group of people, you, you, you want to learn, you want to grow, and then he says, even in our love for you, you have, you have been blessed with leaders who love you, who care for you, all of those are not evidences of the Corinthians being really special people. All of those are evidences of God's grace. God has gifted you. God's given you a passion for himself. God's given you a knowledge of the truth. God's given it so that the proclamation of the truth goes out. God's given you shepherds who love you. That's the basis on which Paul is exhorting them to be generous. It is, it's, it's basic stewardship 101. God has shown us grace. He has given us far more. We, we, we deserve punishment. We deserve suffering, and yet he has given us life and, and hope and peace and, and, and his abiding presence. And so he has shown us grace in countless ways. Our giving back, be it in service or in offerings, our, our, our involvement in ministry in the local church, all of that is stewardship. It is taking some of all that God has blessed us with, and it is by God's grace just pouring it back in, in a generous response to him. So that's why Paul starts this chapter the way he does. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God so that we don't come to the conclusion that, well, the Macedonians, you know, they were like the, you know, the Southern Baptists of their day. They knew how to do a stewardship campaign, right? I grew up Baptist, so I can pick on Baptists. You know, they, they knew how to do that, that campaign to raise money, and they were, just, they were just kind of extraordinary when it came to that. No, saying it, it's, this is not about the Macedonians, other than they are real believers who go through real suffering, just like you and I, and I want to show them to you as an example. But this is about God's grace and what he's done through them. So we've read that opening part. Let me just read on a little bit further. We're going to come back and sort of pick these verses apart a little bit. But verse 3 to the Corinthians about the Macedonians, for they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints, and this not as we expected. But they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. The motivation for their giving, we saw right off the bat, verse 1, is the grace of God poured into their lives. So let's talk about now the manner of their giving. And, and, and I put it in your insert there in your bulletin five words to describe it. Joyous, generous, unselfish, free, and focused. First one being 
joyous. So verse 2 starts with for or because. So we want you to know about the grace of God in the Macedonian churches because for, and here comes the explanation, because in the, the, the midst of, and then he gives this tremendous contrast, in the midst of this severe affliction, hard testing is another way of saying what it, what it says there, severe test of affliction. They are, are going through great testing, and he also says there, extreme poverty, deep is also the word there. Uh, destitution would be a fair um, synonym at that point. So these folks are going through it. This, it is not an easy time. They are experiencing persecution. They are being tried because of their faith in some way, and they are in poverty. And then he contrasts that in a remarkable way. Severe affliction, deep poverty, their abundance of joy, overflowing in a wealth of generosity, giving beyond their means. I don't know about you, but in my life, severe affliction and overflowing in joy don't always come together in the same way that they should. But that's what he's saying here. They are in the midst of it, and, and, and it's a hard time, it's a difficult time, and yet they are overflowing with joy. Temptation here again is that, that response that, well... Macedonians, there's something, something special about them. No, it's God's work because we have in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 where he's writing to the church at Thessalonica, one of those Macedonian churches, 1 Thessalonians 1.6, you became imitators of us and of the Lord for you received the word in much affliction, there it is again, with the joy of who? The Holy Spirit. This is not a man-generated happiness. You, you just made yourself happy even in the midst of affliction, but rather you received the word in the midst of much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. God poured joy into you. God, even in the midst of that affliction, was still present, still giving to you contentment and peace so that you could find joy. Even in the midst of hardship, you could still find that. And every one of you who has walked for any length of time in faith in Jesus Christ understands that experience. When you have walked through situations and somewhere in the midst of that, you have thought, I don't know why I'm at peace at this point. Because the circumstances seem entirely contrary to everything we'd hoped for or desired, whether it's a job loss or a loss of a loved one or a sickness or something. And we found somewhere in the midst of that a wonderful, quiet joy from within, from the peace of God. It's his grace that does that. And so when he says this to the, the Corinthians, he's saying these, these Macedonians are suffering, and yet God's joy is with them. It enables them to be content, so much so that it helps to understand their giving because they are so at peace with what God is doing in the midst of this, that they're okay giving away their stuff, even from their deep poverty, which, again, seems humanly illogical at that point. Joy and affliction, deep poverty that he says overflows in a wealth of generosity. Second, first one's joy, second one's generous. They're destitute. You, you can't have much less than they have. The Christians in Macedonia, mostly Gentiles, are giving to the poverty-stricken believers in Jerusalem, mostly Jews, not because they were better off. This isn't, the, the, the pattern here isn't, I'm going to go to the rich churches and take from them and give to the 
poorer people, but, but what he's saying is, you're both in the midst of it. I've got nobody wealthy to really draw from at this point, and yet in the midst of this deep poverty, they are being generous. This is reminiscent of the story Jesus tells in Mark chapter 12 of the poor widow in Jerusalem when people are coming and bringing their offerings to the temple and there are the rich people who are putting their coins in and then remember the poor widow puts in the two small coins and Jesus turns his disciples' attention to her and he says in Mark 12, 44, they all, speaking of the wealthy, contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. That's what the Macedonians were doing, giving generously from, from what little they, they had and, and, and just being generous about it and wanting to give it. There's a temptation. I, I certainly face it. I, I suspect some of you can relate to this when it comes to the topic of giving, and that's when we talk, talk about the topic of money. There's only so much money. You know, there's only so much income, and then there seems to be all of these bills, you know, the, the car payment and the house payment and the food and the clothes and, and the cell phone and go on and on, you know, with that list, uh, maybe debt, whatever it is. And so it's, it's easy, at least humanly, to say, well, God must want me to take care of all those first. That th those must be the priority that I be faithful in those areas. One of the biblical principles that's taught throughout Scripture is the idea of first fruits, the idea of taking from the first of the harvest, taking from the first of the income, and setting aside a portion and giving it to God. It goes back to the book of Exodus. Exodus 23, 19, the Hebrew people were called to honor God. The best of the first fruits of your ground you shall bring into the house of the Lord your God. Proverbs 3, 9, honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. In an agrarian society, it was saying that the first crops that come in, hey, it, we're going to have crops this year. Don't know if we're going to have a great harvest because the weather could turn in a heartbeat, but we're going to go ahead and trust God and take the first best and bring that in as an offering to God. And we're going to trust that since God is the provider of it all, that even if we give that away, that he still will provide, that he will still meet our needs and knows our needs. I think that's the same principles Paul's reiterating in 1 Corinthians 16, 2, when he says, each week you take a portion according to how God has prospered you. You take a, a, a decide on what that proportion of your income is and, and be generous about it, and you set that aside and say, God, I know there's the cell bill and there's the car and there's this and there's that, and I'm going to trust, first of all, I... I need to be wise about how I deal with all that income, but I'm going to trust that by giving to you, you're not going to leave me as you didn't leave the, the, the widow out starving and wondering, well, now what? It, it, it's a principle that stems from our belief that all that we have is, is from God in the first place. Regardless of how hard we've worked, we, we, we've got to come to the grips with the fact that that, that food on the table and the, the shelter over our heads and the clothes on our backs ultimately are an act of God's grace. He could have put us anywhere in the world with any lack thereof, and yet he's put us here and he's given us stuff, and, and ultimately we need to come to grips with the fact that that is all provided by God. And so the Macedonians and the Jerusalem widow were not giving nervously or in a stingy way and trying to figure out what's the minimum here that I can give and make sure I still have enough left. They were giving generously. 
even in the midst of their affliction and trusting God to provide. Verse 2 just paints such a wonderful picture. Deep poverty and yet wealth of generosity. That doesn't make sense, does it? What he's essentially saying is when it comes to material things, they didn't have much at all. They weren't wealthy in material things, but when it comes to being generous and giving, they were the wealthiest people around. That, that by, by God's view of things, they may not have had a lot of stuff, but they had a wonderful giving away of stuff that came from God's grace. And, and God saw that as generosity. That word generosity at the end of verse 2 is a Greek word that also gives the, the Greek language the word for single. And it's the idea that they weren't giving with dual motives. It wasn't giving with the idea that if I give this much, then hopefully I get that much back, or maybe I multiply based on my giving. They were single-mindedly giving generously. I'm just going to give, and I'm going to trust God's provision. I'm just going to be generous with what God has provided. So he says then in, in verses 3 and 4, they gave according to their means, as he says, as I can testify, in fact, beyond their means of their own accord begging us for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. They gave joyously, generously, third, unselfishly. In light of their own plight, it would not have been surprising had the churches in Macedonia said, hey, wait a minute. You're asking us to give to people who are poor and struggling. Why don't we just keep it instead of us giving to them? Why should we have to be sacrificial in this way, he says they weren't. In, in fact, he describes them there as giving not just according to their means, not just taking a proportion based on what their means were, but actually going above and beyond that. They are sacrificially giving. They are just being unselfish in their giving at this point. You get the picture from verse 4 that it's almost as if you've got someone saying, oh, okay, that's enough, because it says they are begging us earnestly for the favor, please let us give to take part in the relief of the saints. Got to keep in mind at this point, this is not some stewardship campaign fancy words. This is not Paul trying to manipulate the Corinthians. This is the word of God, and the word of God is commending the grace of God at work in these lives that make them remarkably generous to the point that when somebody's saying, that, that's fine, that's sufficient, and they're saying, no, 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 we really, we've got more we can give. That we want to give more. We, we, we just want to serve in this way. That is a remarkably unselfish approach. The end of verse 3 also speaks to the fact that their giving was free. It was voluntary. Paul stresses the fact that it was of their own accord. The Greek word is a compound of two words that mean self and choice. They are saying, this is what we want to do. This is not because you've told us anything, because you've you know, compelled us in some way. This is what we believe the Lord has led us to do. The will of man, when it is set free by the grace of God in salvation, has the opportunity to serve God and God's people in wildly sacrificial, seemingly illogical ways. When we are set free through salvation, through faith in Jesus Christ, 
Our will is now set free. And, and, and so when he talks of giving of their own accord, this is truly free will giving. It is people who have been saved, and that will now has just been enlarged by the nature and grace of God at work in them, and they are just desirous of freely giving. Paul's not trying to coerce them. It is the unending flow of God's grace in their lives that is now being reflected in their own giving. So their giving was joyous, generous, unselfish, free, and finally, use the word focus there on verse 5, just to communicate what he says there at the end. When he says, they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. That phrase, they gave themselves first to the Lord, grammatically is sort of the, the driving verb, the main verb in verses 3 through 5. And so as we look at that begging to give, giving more than their own means, being generous, what's driving that is that last statement that they gave themselves first to the Lord. They got their priorities right from the get-go. They understood that that. Giving was yet another act of worship to the Lord. It was service to him. And so they were giving to him, therefore, and it's an aorist verb, so it speaks of a, a past tense sort of point in time. And so that's why it drives the rest. It was this, this by God's grace, commitment to say, we will serve him first and foremost, and that will drive everything else that leads them to then say, take this, use this. It, it, it's a wonderful picture, particularly for the Corinthians, because if you go back to what we know about the Corinthians, they are a church that struggled with division. Paul warned them in, in 1 Corinthians, they're the ones with, you know, some follow Paul, some Apollos, some Peter. They're the ones that Paul chastises in 1 Corinthians 6 about going to unbelievers with lawsuits. And so there is a been a propensity in the Corinthian church to get divisive with one another, to get competitive with one another, to, to, to get the wrong priorities as, as to what comes first. And, and Paul has this wonderful picture to them of saying, if you just focus on serving God first, if you put Jesus Christ as the pinnacle and, and seek to serve him first, all the rest just kind of falls into place. Just, just let that be where your focal point is. It's it not, not any different from what Jesus says when he says, seek first the kingdom of God and all these things shall be added unto you. Prioritize him by virtue of his grace. Giving ultimately is ministry. That's why he describes it as, as giving to him first. The word at the end of verse 4 when it says the relief of the saints, that word for the relief is where we get our English word deacon from or it's the idea of ministry or service. This was not a chore. This was not an obligation. This was not a box to be checked. This is basic serving, ministering, helping the body in some way, ministering to other believers. If our focus is fixed on Jesus, then giving generously to the body should come pretty naturally. In fact, it would almost seem odd if it didn't flow out of that, that desire to want to give. The Macedonians saw that giving themselves to the Lord was priority number one whether that's meant by chronology or importance. I think both can be consumed in this. It is the idea that they understood Jesus comes first. We worship him first and, and trust the rest. I had a seminary professor who used to say to us seminarians, he said, it's important that the people in the church you serve don't see themselves as paying your salary. They are giving to God, and God is graciously providing your salary. 
That's both sides of the equation. We are giving to God, and it also expresses the dependence on God that comes on the other side. There's no mistaken questions here about a, a responsibility or accountability because the Bible is very clear about the shepherd's accountability to the flock. The flock. But, but his, his point is really how all of us should look at our work, how all of us should look at our jobs, and that is ultimately, yes, I have someone who signs that check to whom I deserve to give, that they deserve honor and respect and a hard day's work. But I'm doing that first and foremost because I'm serving the Lord, because he is my priority and he has called me to work as unto him. And so as I do that, he'll provide what I need through that paycheck. So verse 6, we'll finish up with this. Accordingly, we urged Titus that as he had started, Titus is the one who brought the severe letter, now comes back to them again. So he should come, so he should come and complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. Notice that twice, verse 6 and 7. It is an act of grace. This is not Paul saying, so remember, I taught you. You're supposed to collect money to give to the people in Jerusalem, and therefore I'm sending Titus, and he's the enforcer, and he comes with the bag, and you put the money in the bag, and we take it to Jerusalem. He is... Both verses saying, I'm sending Titus. He's, he's just the, the, the tool, if you will, that I'm using. This is God's grace. It, this is up to God's grace at work in you to complete this act of grace. This is what God will accomplish through you. The completion of the offering for the poverty-stricken saints in Jerusalem is a work that is prompted and sustained and empowered by the grace of God. The Macedonians were an excellent example that Paul used. Paul in his teaching is clear and eloquent here in his teaching. But neither the Macedonians nor Paul have the right to demand offerings. Hey, Corinthians, this is what we said, this is what we've done, you better do this. All of it must come ultimately from the grace of God. And that's why, again, we saw that in verse 7 when he talks about... It's just typical Pauline biblical ministry, which is... Just as you've excelled in these things, again, he, he wants to encourage them. Look at what God has already done. Look what God, by his grace, has done in you in speech, in earnestness, in, in knowledge. God is doing all this in you. So, brothers and sisters, you who've been blessed with spiritual gifts and, and leaders who love you and, and a passion for God's truth, therefore, now complete the act of grace. Sort of complete the circle, if you will, of God's grace being poured out in you and now you pouring that grace on into the lives of others. By his grace, God gave them all that they needed to live a life pleasing to him. Therefore, Paul could tell them what Jesus would tell them, what, what Peter tells his readers in 1 Peter 4. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling as each has received a gift. Use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. In so many ways, you and I have been blessed. Marvelous fellowship. I, I, I sat here, stood here this morning as we were singing through those first songs and just thought, I hope everybody's hearing what I'm hearing. It just sounded so wonderful listening to you all singing this morning. We have, we have so benefited from God's grace in the fact that our kids right now are being 
taught the Word of God from teachers. You as parents are, are teaching the Word of God. We are, we are surrounded and equipped with, with tools to help us minister the Word of God. We have the Holy Spirit's presence with us. We have the gospel of Jesus Christ. All of these evidences of God's grace, having experienced that grace, then we should be good stewards and reflect that grace into the lives of others and in our giving. If you're anything like me in my upbringing in the church, you have heard at least a message or two over time where the giving message was probably more guilt-oriented than grace-oriented. You know, we've got this building we've got to build, and this is what we need, and here's the chart, and, and you know, just the, the whole thing of, you know, you've got to give, you've got to give, and, and the other church down the street, they've got an activity building like that, and so we should too, right? Those kind of guilt sort of messages, I don't think Paul does that at all here with the Corinthians. I don't think God's word does that at all. What it says here is, listen, you, you may have been bogged down in guilt in your giving. You may have missed giving altogether. You may have misunderstood what giving is all about. And, and what scripture is saying is then I commend to you the grace of God because God's work, God's grace is able to work in you to enable you and empower you to give unselfishly and, and generously and freely and, and trusting that it's okay to open your hands and, and rest in God and trust in his provision back. There is grace to turn from those old habits, and that's what God wants to do. He demonstrates it here in the Corinthians to encourage us at whatever point you're at in your, in your maturity and in your giving to see that there is ample grace to show us to be good faithful stewards with what God has provided. Let's pray together. Lord, we, we are so much to be thankful for. Obviously, to begin with is the fact that we have life through Christ. Apart from the gospel, our, our talk of money would be just about material things and providing material things and building buildings and it ultimately wouldn't have a real end purpose, but because you have saved us, all who are here trusting in Jesus Christ, because of the gospel, we have something that transcends this life, something that gives us hope for eternity, and we are grateful for that. But beyond that transcendent, we've got the wonderful fellowship you've given us here at Grace Bible. We thank you for church family, for people that love us here and spur us on and, and for the word and, and for holding the word up as the authority in what we do. And for all of that, we can look no other place than to give credit to your grace, having blessed us and put us here. And so we thank you. And we pray that we would be a gracious people to others, that we would be gracious and generous in our giving, trusting in your kind provision. Father, if there's anyone here who is not trusting in Jesus Christ alone as Savior, perhaps they've come with a mentality that I, I must I have to in some way earn God's favor. My performance, my prayers, whatever rituals I do, all of these things must somehow add up to earn God's favor. Lord, I pray that today you would bring them up short that you would show them that the, the greatest gift, the most generous and unselfish gift of all time is the giving of your son, Jesus Christ, to bear our sin and stand in our place and take our punishment. Lord, might you lead 
any here this morning who are not trusting in Christ to surrender to him this day, to be recipients of your grace alone. Thank you for your kind favor to us. Thank you, Lord. We live in a, an area where at, at some levels it's hard to fathom fully what it was like in Macedonia or Jerusalem because we have such an abundance in general in this area. Lord, help us to, to be wise stewards, to be people who long to, to give generously and to see you use what we have given for your glory and the spread of your fame. And all these things we pray in the name of our Savior Jesus Christ. Amen.